I'm so thankful for a place like Mount Hermon that is, like so many Christian conference centers, set aside as a place for people to study and reflect and be together and uh, consider things. I, I also pray for them, like I do churches and like I do seminaries, that sometimes overexposure to Christian verbiage uh, is one of the quickest ways to kill the work of the Spirit, uh, especially if we're not going to do the truth. If we're just going to hear the truth, then it actually uh, can inoculate us in, in an ever stronger way against the gospel. So uh, I think these are sort of, uh, they're, they're alternately both oases and danger zones. Um, they can be an oasis for renewal and encouragement, but they can also be danger zones where Christian verbiage just uh, takes over and the reality itself um, seems invisible or inaccessible. So anyway, I'm just really grateful for Mount Hermon and all the influence that it's had over the years. I think we're going to uh, start with some questions. So let me just see if you have things that you want to ask. And there's Mike people here who might have things that they want to raise. Yeah. Mark, really just appreciated your comments. One of the things that we were talking about in our little small group is like if the mesmerizing rhythms of culture have become, I don't know, co-opted a lot of the narrative of the church, how do you expect people then to become this blessing, this second mile people, this like without some sort of indirect formation, right? So Willard talks about indirect rhythms, formation. Like I just am, Maybe you could lean in a little bit right. on that side, right? Because I have a lot of doubts about whether you can take someone who's mesmerized and say, "Love your enemy," and they're like, "Exactly." And you're like asking them to run a marathon, no. and they're like, "I've never walked out my door." Right. Exactly. So this is where the Christian uh, formation process, uh, which needs to be built into most congregations and doesn't uh, get built into people's lives, is so 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 important. You're absolutely right. I think it's completely like it was like the Pup Report saying we should really be a domination that knows how to discern, but in fact, uh, well the the words are the right words, the reality hasn't been formed, and so therefore we're not prepared for it. And certainly enemy love is like that. So, um, so I do think as a pastor and with your session, there has to be a process that you go through of determining, in a way, where do you think you are in this process? What are the principal mesmerizing rhythms? Is there one or two of them that over a period of time that you think as a congregation um, in a, that you could create a counterpoint to that? So both a critique and a counterpoint. So how do you how do you both help people see things for what they are, and then also, on the other hand, to actually be able to figure out what sort of um, counter-directional practice that's positive, that's not just negative. And that's where, um, first of all, we have to acknowledge that we have to do that work ourselves, so we are caught up ourselves in these mesmerizing rhythms, and we have to figure out what are the ones that have particular control over us. Um, I remember, for example, one of the ones that is certainly a mesmerizing rhythm for me is that, uh, that I'm vulnerable to the considerations and opinion of people that are the generation before me, um, especially people who for various reasons I might admire. So I'm very aware that I am vulnerable to their critique. So if I hear their critique, it lands in a very different way than if it's someone my generation or someone that's younger. It's just, a, it's just an orientation, a kind of bias toward their opinion. And I remember um, there was this, uh, a person who fit that description exactly, who really deeply, um, really deeply resented a decision that the session at Berkeley had made at a certain point. And, um, and so he asked me out for lunch and I just knew that it was not gonna be for a happy meal. And, um, and so in this, a very quiet way, he told me just how deeply this exposed 
the problems in me, the problems in the church. This was like the, the, the exact expression of everything that was wrong. So because I, had, I have such esteem for this person, um, his critique landed with particular force. And, um, and so I said, so it, it sounds like you would think then that I should leave over this. He said, no, no, no. And then in a fairly passive-aggressive way said, no, I think it, it'll be good for you to just be here. So um, the following Sunday, uh, I knew where he sat, of course, because he always sat in the same pew. Uh, I waited, and he came in and sat down, and the service was underway, and I was noticing that, um, that every time I seemed to get up to the pulpit, he, from my paranoid point of view, turned his body sideways to where I was, and then when someone else was at the pulpit, then he would turn his body back. Now, I'm thinking, oh, Mark, get over yourself. This can't be happening. This is, like, stupid. This person is a mature man. He's in his, at this stage, probably in his 70s highly esteemed, uh, you're, you're making this up. Until it was just so clear that I was not only not making it up, it was even more aggressively true than I had imagined. So we did all kinds of things, many, many, many different things to attempt to work through these issues. He was an important part of the church and a, had been an elder and blah, 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 blah. So all those things were failing. And so uh, over the weeks and then months and then years, it became the case that for a long period of time, which totaled seven years, he, every time I would stand up at the pulpit, he would turn his body completely away and look over here, which just happens to occupy a lot of sermon time. So, uh, <laughs> so it just turns out that he was willing to have me preach there, but he was going to look here. And then as soon as I was done, he would turn his body back and be. So the question then became, is this a mesmerizing rhythm that's going to capture me? Because it could not be more noticeable to me. It was sort of invisible, probably, to others, but to me, it was, it was a controlling thing. So it became a crisis, really, in a spiritual discipline sort of way. How do I, how do I love my pers the person that is treating me like an enemy? I actually did not see him as an enemy, but he certainly saw me as an enemy. So I have to figure out, how can I do that? Now, he was very shrewd in his critique of me and used some of my favorite words against me. So when I would then use those words, especially in the first months, it felt like I was like I was stepping on the landmines that he had laid for me, right? All of that just tends to not work too well spiritually when you're trying to serve a wider community of people. So what happened really was that it, it, it quite genuinely did become an opportunity for a spiritual practice that began to be renewed, where I found myself um, going into to, uh, worship really grateful that this brother in Christ was still there, that we were still called to be in relationship, that I needed to see him as my brother and friend, and that while there were elements of his critique that were actually quite legitimate, it was also legitimate that we had made the decision that we'd made, and that, that was just kind of a discriminating thing. So the real question became, can I be free in his zone to not be acceptable to him? And that became a really, really healthy discipline for me, because it kind of named in a particular way what is a common challenge in any circumstance, which is, do I, do, you, do I have to be acceptable to you for me to be free to be in your presence? I think a great deal of ministry is corralled and diminished by the fact that we don't crucify that. Uh, I don't need his approval. I can actually, actually be wrong in his presence. So I would, especially in the early months of this, I would, I would try to actively consider myself wrong 
and in his presence, not I'm right and he's wrong. No, I'm going to actually put myself in the position of realizing I could actually be wrong, truly wrong, and I need to learn to be free and wrong in his presence. <laughs> now, that became, for me, uh, especially as it went on for seven years, uh, an, an amazing process. And he, when I eventually left Berkeley, um, he was very specially invited by several people to come. He didn't come. Um, so it continued, is the point. So the, the question then becomes, can I, how free am I? And, and what I became aware of was that I needed to cultivate that in the congregation. If we're going to be people who move beyond the mesmerizing rhythms of what are the things that control us, how do we try to name them? So, of course, I couldn't name that particular one in that setting. But there were other things that I could easily name that were also mesmerizing rhythms for me or for people in the church. Um, intelligence is one of those things that's a mesmerizing rhythm in a place like Berkeley. Degrees is a mesmerizing rhythm. Achievements of a certain kind are a mesmerizing rhythm. Not being that kind of church, that's a mesmerizing rhythm. Um, and uh, all of those things hamper the work of the Spirit of God, right? So let's name, let's make fun of those things, let's punch holes in them for what the cheap ones that there are. And in the ones that are more uh, profound, then I think we have to do a different kind of work. But that's called discipleship. And most churches do not disciple their congregations. So we assume that church rhythm is equals discipleship. Not so much the evidence of the New Testament. That's not really exactly... Jesus didn't just hold worship services. Um, he was actually with people, right? In the places of their mesmerizing rhythms. And I think it's, it's working around that terrain in a very granular way and in an intentional way. Um, and in a humble way, because we are ourselves always caught into that. I hope that's helpful. Other comments or questions? Yes? It seems like there's uh, a lot of churches that are getting to this mesmerizing rhythm um, with the culture by darkening the entrance into a church, by taking away the cross, uh, removing the pulpit, uh, make it very, very comfortable for people to feel like, wow, this, this feels okay. And uh, I think we're probably doing more harm than we are doing good. But what's your feeling? Yeah, I think I would start by pointing to the reflective work that Willow Creek did on itself um, in asking whether its orientation toward um, making a welcoming environment for the stranger, um, user-friendly church, was really a faithful practice or whether they were delusional. And their conclusion was we were delusional. Um, we thought that what we were doing was the right thing, but it actually turns out that we really weren't doing what we thought we were doing. We had created a narrative for ourselves that justified it. Um, that doesn't automatically mean that, that we don't, of course, attempt to ha uh, extend hospitality, which in its broadest and most earnest way would be one way of describing what they were trying to do. How do we figure out how to be um, hospitable. I was talking earlier to someone about this great concern for how do we simply embody a hospitality, a genuine, deep, true hospitality toward the stranger. Um, and so I think you know, what you're getting at is sort of the signs and symbols of what it is that we're doing about that. But in doing so, we have to retain our identity. So then the question becomes, what is our identity? And how do we, how do we make the identity not so much about the symbols, though the ones that you've described, are palpable, and they, they, we have to think through those symbols. I'm not suggesting that we 
uh, live in a symbol-free symbol zone. That's not true. So we have to think carefully about those kinds of questions. What I think I find very interesting, though, is that for so many young adults especially, um, they actually are not put off by architecture and organs and tradition. It's just a really interesting thing that, in fact, for a lot of people, um, that's completely acceptable and really not at all their, their issue. We've kind of taken, in a way, the superficial and made it primary. And, and people come to our churches, I'm actually looking for the primary thing. I want to know whether there's, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, I want to know if there's actually a real spiritual word for me and for us in this period. I want to know, is there the reality, not just is there the symbol? So you could have those symbols and still have the reality present in which the symbols then become um, less, less significant. But if in fact the absence of those symbols or the presence of those particular symbols ends up clouding the reality or making us think that we've done the main thing. Gary Haugen, the founder of IJM, tells the story of being uh, the youngest of his siblings and his father, who was a, a very athletic guy, uh, taking his bro older brothers and himself to Mount Rainier for a hike one day. And he was much the littlest brother. And he knew that his dad and the, his older brothers were going to be able to make the, their way up the, uh, the, the part of the mountain that they were going to climb on that day. And um, so he was uh, aware that they were going to have a great time and he was going to have a completely miserable time. So he adopted the only strategy that he could take when he was about six years old, which was to start whining and then, and then whine some more and whine some more and whine some more until finally his father realized this was going to destroy their day on Mount Rainier. So uh, he negotiated with the person that was in the, uh, the tourist uh, visitor center there um, to be able to say, can my son stay here while we go hike and we'll come back and you know, he agreed and blah, blah, blah. Gary, being a very precocious kid, decided he was going to demonstrate that he'd had much the better experience. So he sort of listened to every video and tried to memorize every sign. So he knew every statistic about Mount Rainier and all the wildlife that was on it and all that kind of thing. So that when his father and brothers came back, he could impress them with his experience. He rolled out all of his expertise. But then the problem was that they began to tell him about their experience on the mountain, about what the air felt like, about how cold the water was running off of the glacier, how astonishing the wildlife was, how, how uh, the whole scene had been so fun and playful and scary and exciting and beautiful. And he said, you know, it only gradually dawned on me that the whole purpose of the visitor center was for the experience on the mountain. Then pulling back from that, he says, it's my observation that a lot of Christian ministries are absorbed with their visitor centers as though they are a destination. When they're meant to be a pathway toward the mountain, the visitor center exists for the experience of the mountain. It doesn't exist for itself. So in a context uh, like the one that I think you're naming, if we believe that all of those signs and symbols are actually to have come to the destination, then we're going to handle all of that really differently. If we actually believe instead this is the visitor center where we discover and name and learn reality in order to go out and live that reality in, in the wider world and culture, then I think we handle a lot of those things in a really dramatically different way. But we too often have defined the church as a visitor center. And we decide that the really important thing is that we have really great screens, even better videos, that we have better music, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. It all becomes visitor-centric, visitor-center-centric, rather than actually being a, an enactment of, of the reality of God's love. There was a question, yeah. Um, at the end of the last session, in response to a uh, question, you used the phrase um, that uh, the, ch the church, I can't get it exactly right, the church uh, 
in some ways is rotten to the core. And that created great consternation in my small group. And then we attacked you and, and misquoted you. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is my daily posture. I understand this. Yeah. I think I walk through life as a Rorschach blotch, where people just attach to me whatever they want. Please, go ahead. Well, so <laughs> that's perfect. So yeah. um, the, the, the struggle we had with that mm -hmm. as we processed yes. was, were you talking about our fundamental identity, even our theology, or is the rottenness the alternative that we have taken to who we are supposed to be? Yeah. I can't exactly recover that moment, but I think what I was referring to was the observation in Genesis 6 um, that when, when it, God looks on the people and says, and the thoughts and intentions of their heart were only evil always as a prelude to the, to the flood. So uh, I'm making what is, I think, from, a, from Calvin's point of view, uh, simply an observation about total depravity. And do I believe that total depravity exists and is alive and well in the life of the church as well as anywhere else? Absolutely. So therefore, um, I would consider me, it, us, that, to all be affected in every direction. So I take that as a premise um, from which we then are delivered, which is why the extraordinary news that we, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus is such an exceptional gift. Um, so we, we, we carry our, the burden of our sinfulness, but we also carry our complicity um, in a wider kind of sinfulness that's not just my individual sinfulness, but my participation in, in public, um, public sin, my being co-opted, mesmerized in the way that I was trying to describe. So, um, you know, do I believe that the fundamental baseline is evil? No, because I think that we've been made by a good God. Um, this is, I'm not really actually a Calvinist. It's sort of strange for me to have referred to Calvin um, even as many times as I have. Um, so I don't consider myself a Calvinist in that way. I think that I, I have a very strong sense that our life is really set in motion by the goodness of God's creativity and that we, we cannot expunge uh, the signature of God on our life, that we've been made in God's image and given the value and dignity of that. However, the institutions that we shape are going to bear the marks of our beauty and goodness and of our groaning. It'll all be present in the way that we've structured it. And uh, in Presbyterianism, there's an interesting way of dealing with that, which is the so-called checks and balances of our governance, believing that somehow that kind of structure will actually make us more pure um, and, and lead us to, quote, a better church. I take a much less elevated view of it. I would just say it's just functionally useful and it's better than some other alternatives. Um, and um, and I, don't, I don't in any way um, sort of crown it in any with any particular uh, unique stature. And I think that's true of our structures, that's true of our churches, it's true of many things. So, um, so let's imagine this Presbyterian moment. Um, so I'm serving a church at this stage with a very high chancel and a stone chancel. And uh, the church had a habit of the, the elders coming forward for uh, communion separately for each of the elements. So they would come forward and they would receive uh, the bread, and then they'd go out and distribute the bread. Then they came forward again, and they received the cup, and then they would take the cup, and then they'd come forward, and after each case, of course, all the elements would be returned to the chancel. So on this one particular occasion, the, they were at the cup stage, and they came up the, the stairs, and they were to turn toward each other, and, and as they did this, they were then to, meant to turn toward uh, the table. But instead, the two that were right in the middle collided, and both chalices uh, in their hands fell to the ground, 
and, and rolled really loudly down the stairs, just in this protracted, oozy, awful, messy, horrible way. There was never a better moment not to be a Roman Catholic. I mean, this was just so problematic about what was happening right at that very moment. So, um, but what was, what was dramatic to me was not really this. It was that as they turned and collided, then I saw them look at each other with a look of unbelievable hatred that was not like the social awkwardness of, gosh, this is really messy and awkward and why did you hit me and whatever. That was not this look. This look was like, wow, what is that? So after this service, um, we were in the side room and had cleaned things up. And it just happened by the providence of God that it was just the three of us. And I said, um, you know, I want to ask you guys about something. When that happened, I understand that we were all bothered and, you know, sorry that that awkwardness was created. But, But I thought I really saw something pass between you as you looked at each other that felt like it was really actually hatred. The room was just silent, and it was one of those times when, in the providence of God, I did not speak. (laughs) So we stood there for a long time, until one guy said, it all started 22 years ago. Now suddenly, you were in a completely different place. And he then began to tell the story, and you could feel the other guys just you know, incredible defensiveness. Eventually, he told his side of the story. This went back and forth for a a while. This led to multiple meetings afterwards. What it exposed was the rot. This is what I'm trying to get at. It lurks in (laughs) this formal moment where we are celebrating the unity of being one in Christ at the table of God's grace. (laughs) And what really should be more appropriate but that we bring our our hatred to the table. It's just that we don't usually do it quite so honestly as they had done. So the rot, in that sense, is then right there. It's built into the structure. They had both been elders for many, many years. They had served this congregation year in and year out for decades, and they hated each other because of an event that happened 22 years before. It had all kinds of ways of being described. It had legitimacy, and it had... um, evil about it and how it had grown in each of their spirits. The long process then was the one of, then how do we face this? It's not, it's not unusual, of course, that we may hate people in the body of Christ. Let's admit that. Then let's move toward that. Then let's try to name it. Let's try to figure out what it's about. Let's, let's try to seek God's grace for that. And over a period of time, um, because they were finally willing, they entered into that space. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is... This kind of stuff lurks everywhere, and the question becomes how seriously we really take it. And I think in the ethos and culture of Presbyterianism, with all of its decency and in order, there is a kind of shellacking of things that that covers over what is, I think, really inauthentic. And it feels inauthentic, right? Um, That very church, which was, for me, the hardest place that I ever served, um, it was hard largely because it felt like I was the pastor of a church that I wouldn't ever want to invite anyone to. And that was not because they didn't have cordial social hospitality. They were actually quite amazing at that. 
it was that in the end, I couldn't figure out that if we could actually be real people together in a real place, or if we were just doing this kind of managed Christianity. Um, so that's the crisis. And I think people who have no history, no obligation to the church, no desire for such an inauthentic community, why would they tolerate it? Why would they, they sniff it out in a moment? And um, then it feels like it's not a place they want to be. So my, I think this question is, are we prepared to actually address and change those things? Or are we just going to keep reproducing that generation by generation? If so, we'll, we'll find ourselves extinct. Sorry, last question before we get to more of your meditations. Uh, just a comment to follow up on this, that um, the image just keeps coming back to me from Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego willing to step into, into the, the fire. fire. Yeah. And how if they weren't 100% clear and pure before they stepped into the fire, the right. process of stepping into the fire would bring about that clarity and right. purity. Right, purity, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that, Rebecca. It's absolutely true. Yeah, do we, do we cultivate a willingness to step into the fire? So that's a good uh, jumping off point for what I want us to think about for a few minutes. Um, so will there be a church in the 21st century that matters? And last night was trying to focus on, is there actually a word? Because it's not going to matter because we've decided to, you know, spit polish the... Uh, uh, the furniture or something, it's, it's going to matter because we actually have a real word that is greater than our own reality, our own human making, our own culture, our own social location, our own economics, our own education, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something actually a real word that we have? That's the first um, major question in crisis. And I think the great news of the gospel is absolutely there is such a word. That word has been revealed in Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, a God who enters into every fire and every darkness and who carries the burden of our own brokenness and never fails to do that. Relentlessly, he does that. And we'll see that uh, again in a text that we're going to look at in a minute. Then the second question that we were looking at this morning, there has to be a word, but there also has to be a communion, a community, an embodied people who give not a perfect example. Nobody, nobody here is promoting um, Christian idealism, that the church should be the full manifestation of the presence of the kingdom. That if you're hearing what I'm saying in that sort of way as though we're held up to that standard and the failure to do so means that our ministry is, is de-authenticated, that's not what I'm trying to argue. I'm just saying, are we on that road? Is that actually really what we're trying to be about? We will not get there. I have a, realized, a non-realized eschatology. I realize that some of it has been realized in Jesus Christ, but it has not been fully realized in us. And it won't be this side of glory, but let's stay in the process of actually being transformed in that kind of way, a relentless eye toward that sort of central work of transformation that changes us from people who are simply caught in the same mesmerizing rhythms to being these peculiar people who have the capacity to create and live inside um, a unique communion of unlike people. That's that's the Ephesians 2 argument, right? The demonstration that we were dead and alive in Christ is that we live in an unexpected communion. That's, the, that's why the church is so important. It's why we're supposed to be an outpost of hope. It's why we're supposed to be uh, and are, are called to be light and salt in the world because we're not like the things that are around us, the darkness in the case of light, the putrefaction in the case of salt, that we're the agency that, that's trying to help 
move people and, and the world that God's made back toward God's intentions. That's the vision. But we live in a world where flourishing in the way that God intends us to do is, is, uh, is, is going to be an exception. And part of the anxiety of why we hide the way we do and, and parochialize the way we do is that we believe that if we can just make the world small enough, maybe it will finally be good enough. It's interesting Jesus' strategy is the opposite. If we're going to become good enough, then we have to make the world big enough to include the places and people where the rub actually happens. And it's in that context where we get to be changed. I want us to watch a video which, is, uh, which ha- came to my attention one day when I was getting onto an airplane. And, um, and I, it had been a, a pretty exhausting day, and I was running to listen to this um, this album that I had downloaded, and I brought it up on my on my phone as I was sort of settling into my seat. But I I thought I had just downloaded um, just an audio album of a, of one of my favorite pieces of music, uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and and as I was settling into wanting to listen, to it, suddenly my lap became alive because uh, I looked down and on my phone this was what was playing. <laughs> Josh, that was Joshua Bell, yes. Now, when that was happening in my lap <laughs> and came to an end, my heartbeat had really, really increased. I was just completely, unexpectedly caught up in this drama. And I, I just found myself just wanting to leap up and ask for the microphone and declare to the plane, my life has just been changed. <laughs> and the most instinctive thing in the world to do is be, let me show you this. Let me listen to this. Enter into this with me. Is this not just the most amazing thing? Now, my point in telling that story is that we, we depend on these glimpses of the communion that in some way or another we are meant to manifest. In that particular context, an image of, of flourishing, imagine the levels of creativity that were required to make that moment actually happen. Just name some of them. Just shout out what... What are the forms of creativity and communion that were required in order for that to take place? Practice, years of practice. Anybody have children who are learning instruments? Violins, painful, this kind of experience, yes. Sorry? A love for the music, absolutely, a passion. Sorry? Passion. Sorry? No director, he was the director actually. When, When you. I've actually, since there's a long video version of this, and he actually is the director of this, uh, of the whole orchestration. He, as a young one there, yes. is the director of the older. Yes, that's right. That's right. So there's a generational interplay that's going on. Absolutely. Sorry? Knowledge. knowledge. Actual knowledge. Yes. Instrument. Instrument. Imagine the instrument making. I mean, the, the, the Stradivarius that he plays, there's a notorious story of a time when he left this in a taxi and it eventually got back to him. But it was an extraordinary expression. So imagine having this unbelievably multi-million dollar valued instrument that you've left in a taxi. But at this moment, all of that and his own uh, extraordinary capacity converge. Other energy. energy. Humility. humility, right? How, how humility? You have to be willing to pursue your own desires Right. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes, exactly. Vivaldi's composition, even, even making it, and then preserving it over time. Yes, exactly. 
Right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they would see themselves as backup, but yes, I understand what you mean. <laughs> they weren't just the backup band to Joshua Bell, but I understand what you're getting at. The whole, the whole orchestra was needed, yes. Sorry? Submission. Submission and coordination, yes. Amazing, amazing. Now, if you imagine this, you know, this, is, this just sets, for me, my mind racing in thinking about all the dimensions of what it is that, that we're called to try to, in ways, orchestrate in our, uh, in our symphonies, our orchestras called the life of the church that we are, in some way or another, seeking to play in, seeking to lead, seeking to contribute. What are the places where that goes well and what are the places that it doesn't? Now, the interesting thing about this is that I could not be part of that orchestra. Though I have studied music formally for probably 15 or almost 20 years of musical training, I do not have the skill or the ability to be able to be in that group. I am the outsider. So part of my rather pathetic response to this, after finding my heart racing and building, is that, that I would just never be that good. I, I will not be Joshua Bell. That's not what I have to bring. I, I won't be that kind of an artist. But we need, in the body of Christ, in all of its variations, not just these kinds of super art, artist people, because if I played a children's orchestra piece with all of the scratchy violins and all of the strangely attentive and inattentive grade school children or middle school children that may be in the orchestra, it would not sound like that. But it is in its own way got the same marks of beauty about it. But you have to listen more carefully. There was a wonderful man in our congregation in Berkeley named Art Shearer who for 45 years was a middle school band teacher. Oh, God rest his soul. What, what an amazing thing. And he submitted himself to the musicianship of his students and did everything possible to enable them to become the musicians they wanted to be. Fast forward, he's now close to dying. He's now in his 80s. I go to see him. He's already been transferred in the middle of the night to really, frankly, a terrible hospital and a kind of aftercare facility that was just awful, uh, the kind of place that you walk in, and the smell is clearly uh, a problem. And they say, yeah, I think he's back there, and I just sort of walk back there hoping I will find uh, my beloved friend, and he's literally upside down in the bed. He somehow has gotten himself turned around. He's leaning off the edge of the bed with his head at the foot of the bed so that when I walk in the room, he looks at me upside down, and he says as his first words, you are such a good pastor. I'm not such a good pastor. What was so stunning about that moment is that that's what he brought to every orchestra he was ever a part of. He lived in that way, that sort of instinct to enter into that place upside down in a raunchy aftercare facility, and his first words were gratitude. That was as true and real to Art Shearer as anything could be, upside down in a smelly room, and he can still be grateful. That's not because he played with Joshua Bell. He played with scratchy middle school instruments all year, and that's why his heart was so magnanimous in its beauty, in, because he learned how to do this. The church has to learn how to live in the in-between spaces 
with the capacity to bring into those places that are never going to be virtuoso-like, but are always going to be more like scratchy middle school bands. How do we listen for the heart and beauty of that place and those people and that circumstance? This is what happens, of course, in watching Jesus through his ministry. If you think, for example, um, of the woman with the flow of blood in the Gospel of John. I remember the first time I read this text thinking, okay, this, this is the aroma of the kingdom. This is what it's going to mean if you follow Jesus, you go to the places you wouldn't necessarily otherwise go, and you see what other people will not see. So in that famous text, which I'm sure you all know very well, the first person that encounters Jesus after he's uh, gotten out of the boat is Jairus, a religious person, a person of stature, a man of privilege, an insider, a person who knows how to access Jesus, who can come straight to Jesus and say, my daughter's dying, I have a need, come with me. All of the marks of confident privilege. And having done that, we are on the midst, on the midst of that, in the midst of that story unfolding, when suddenly the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years touches the hem of his garment. A woman who, by every social definition, religious, political, and otherwise, was absolutely marginalized and kept outside. A woman. A bleeding woman. A woman who, in every way, was not one to approach directly and boldly. A woman who's told you your value, your dignity, your voice, your condition marginalizes you in every way. Jesus is on the road with Jairus to heal Jairus's daughter. It seems like a perfectly good thing until this woman touches him of his garment to only do from behind what the man Jairus did in the front. He comes straight to Jesus. She comes barely in the background through the crowd, reaching out and touches the hem of his garment and is healed. She's changed and knows she's changed. But what's so profound about that moment is that Jesus feels the experience of power having gone out from him in some kind of way. And as you know, stops the action and asks in this really awkward way, who touched me? So at a moment where every instinct would have been, the big donor to the big synagogue is saying, come and heal my daughter. And now the awkward woman bleeding at the edge slows down and stops the action. I remember how forcefully this landed for me. So this means if you follow Jesus, you're going to have to see what you could easily miss. You might even intend to miss. But if you're going to follow him, then you have to become somebody who learns to see in this unexpected way. He sees her, as you know. He dignifies her and her story and her identity, her value, and her healing. Meanwhile, what is Jairus doing? Just waiting. He's Jairus. Excuse me, we're on our way to my daughter. Like, what, what's up with this? Every social signal said, don't stop, don't pay attention, don't pursue her, don't find out who it is. And Jesus shifts all that. We could do worse things than to just dwell in that text for the next year and to ask ourselves, who do we see and who don't we see? Because if the church needs a word and the church needs the word to know itself, 
and the church is going to live in a different way, then the test of whether the church is living in that different way has to do with what we do with the people that are at the margins, with our neighbors, particularly at the margins, and particularly those who don't belong in the social universe that we might be in, and that particularly do not bear the marks of the thing that we might assume. What are we doing in learning how to love in a Jesus-like way toward them? That will be the mark of whether there's a church that matters. If there was a church that had its own word, and it had its own internal life, and was able to kind of, at least in, to itself, reflect more and more of the life of Jesus Christ, but it still didn't have the capacity to translate that into terms that actually mattered to the woman who comes from behind, unseen, unheard, not even making a request, just touches the hem. Are we prepared to actually move uh, in that direction? The church has tended to, to move with the movers. It has tended sometimes, in its best moments, to be a church of the peculiar, the awkward, peculiar people that we are. And certainly... All of our churches have such people, but they are often marginalized even in the life of the church. So the marginality that they experience elsewhere becomes the marginality that they also continue to experience in the church. The greatest single instance of this is actually the church's treatment of women. Continuing still, despite all things, even Presbyterian, we have not done nearly enough to actually counter the culturally formed narrative of women and their marginalization. But the same thing is true, of course, of people of color. So our denomination has been after the question of diversity for decades, and it has precisely changed our demographic makeup almost not at all. There somehow is a kind of captivity that we have that might mean that in terms of individual relationships in some congregations, there's, there's some greater demonstration of that, but fundamentally, we are a screamingly white denomination in culture, language, form, structure, governance, prayers, liturgy, music, and then we wonder again why, why it would be that to an ever more multicultural uh, nation that we live in, that the gospel doesn't seem as palpable or evident or real or attractive or compelling as we would wish it to be. One day uh, when I was in Berkeley, I, I got this phone call from this woman who said, um, I haven't met you, but I've been listening to your services on the, on the radio. I'd like to meet with you, but you'd have to agree to certain things before we could meet. So I said, okay, well, what, what are those things? She said, well, we'd need to meet off the premises of the church. We'd need to be able to be in a public space. I don't want to be enclosed. I'd need to be able to pace and swear and smoke and scream because uh, I just have a lot that I need to get off my chest. I said, well, okay, um, maybe just one little question first. Do you have a gun? Um, <laughs> I was, I was heartened by the fact there was a little chuckle. And then she said, well, let's just say it this way. I don't expect to. <laughs> so, so with that, we uh, ended up meeting on a certain day in a, in a nearby park. And it was just in the first moments of the conversation um, where everything that she had uh, stored up came gushing forth about so many things in her life and so many places where there was such extraordinary pain. We had multiple times about that, um, talking about those things. She would um, do all the things that she had anticipated, and she would never sit on the park bench that I was sitting on. She would sit on, you know how in parks they're kind of separated, so there was a bench over there. When she was finally ready to sit down, she'd sit over there and continue this really 
um, extraordinary story. And she had a right to every kind of declaration of rage that you can imagine. And it felt for many, many of these conversations that it was just a matter of continuing to listen to this. Eventually, one day, out of the blue, really, as far as I was concerned, she said, you know, what all this comes down to is this. I just need to know, is there somewhere in the world a God who actually knows me, who's not a man, and who would have the capacity to love me? We started the conversation around those themes in that direction, and then we were going to meet and continue it the next week, and, and she never showed up. I called her, and um, her phone had been disconnected. I had her address. I went to her apartment, and uh, she had moved. There was no forwarding address. I asked the manager of the apartments if there was any way of contacting her or any way I could contact her through him. No, there was no way. She was just gone. So I didn't really know anyone who knew her, and I didn't really have any place to turn. The internet had yet to be invented. Yes, that does mean I'm as ancient as it might appear. Um, but when the internet did uh, come into existence, uh, periodically I would find myself searching for her name, which was a little unusual, so I thought maybe it would be possible to find her. I never found any indication of where she was at all. And years went by, five years went by, 10 years went by, 15 years went by, 20 years went by, 25 years went by, almost 30 years went by. Now we've moved from the Bay Area down to Pasadena. I'm at a coffee shop, I see this change jar, which in this case was for donations, and there was a slip of paper next to it that explained that it was donations for something that was happening in Burma. And because I've tracked fairly closely what's happening in Burma, I wanted to read this, and I read the whole thing, and then at the bottom it said, if you're interested in knowing more about this, you can contact, and then gave the first initial and the last name of the person's email, and it matched this person. And the last name was, again, just unusual enough that it was like... So I immediately wrote it down, rushed to my computer, wrote her an email, and then sort of sat there frozen, hoping that she would respond. Basically, I was just saying, I wonder if you're the person that I might have had conversations with in Berkeley a long time ago. And she wrote back about three hours later and said, yeah, yeah, that is actually me. I can't believe that you remembered me. I said, oh, no, no. <laughs> No, no, no. Au contraire, au contraire. Really, it was not about whether I had any difficulty remembering you. I was just wondering if, if you were that person. Where are you? I said. She said, well, I'm, I'm right now in the, in the Sierras. What are you doing there? I'm helping with a friend. Where do you live? I live in Pasadena. You live in Pasadena. Why do you live in Pasadena? Because I'm a student at Fuller Theological <laughs> Seminary. I'm a student at Fuller Theological Seminary. So we sort of froze-framed there and decided that we didn't want to continue the conversation uh, online, that we would continue it when she came back. I have to say that meeting this person um, after 30 years was an experience of uh, one of the most profound examples of God's capacity to transform and heal a life that I've probably ever witnessed. The rage, anger-filled, justice-seeking person that was so venomous was actually a person who had simply been healed by God's grace. So where were you for the last 30 years? Well, you know, I had those issues. <laughs> I do. I, 
I said, I think they're these. I named the issues that I thought, yeah, it was all those. She said, yeah, it was all those. That's right. That's why I had to leave so quickly. That's why I didn't leave any information. That's why I didn't want to be able to be found. That's why I ended up doing this and that. And then I eventually ended up serving for most of the last 20 years um, in, the, in the Hill Tribe area of Cambodia, largely serving women and girls that have no identity, no rights, no, uh, no sense of, of capacity to be able to even have a voice. So I just, I live among them, and I came here to Fuller really because I felt like I needed more biblical and theological education to do what I was doing among the Hill Tribe women and girls in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. It was an amazing, amazing uh, expression of healing. What did, she, what did she demonstrate? She demonstrated the capacity to move beyond the mesmerizing rhythms of her own torture into a new response to a word of grace that came to her even more clearly than it did out of our conversations through someone else that she encountered along the way. That led her into a place of healing and renewal, and it manifested itself in harvesting her pain for the sake of loving other people. So all of that narrative was not buried. It was not like overgone, forgotten. No, it was vivid to her. She was healed from it, but it was vivid. And now it enabled her to be able to take risks that she just seemed to think were quite normal uh, to live among the tribe tribes of northern Cambodia and to do everything she could to serve women and girls at acute risk with many of the same dangers and potentials for abuse that she herself had experienced. It was an amazing story. And in a certain way, it, it became for me just another piece of evidence that I think we all need of this capacity to love the woman with the flow of blood for 12 years. She went in pursuit of seeing the vulnerable. We have to ask ourselves, is the church that we're leading, is the manifestation of the discipleship that we're trying to live ourselves, one that actually extends itself into those vulnerable places? Are we prepared to be people who, who give attention to the edges and to the vulnerable, not just, of course, to the people that are, in a way, the donors? So the question then becomes, how will we, how will we actually become enemy-loving, stranger-loving, immigrant-loving, other loving people who actually know how to extend this kind of love. There will not be a church that matters for the 21st century unless we are an unlikely communion ourselves where we learn to love across lines of division and difference inside the church so that we can actually love even more capably outside the church in seeking justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly before our God. So the Final uh, word that I just want to say is that it seems to me that it's that that's going to give evidence. Is there a word that's not ours? It's not, it never belongs to us. It's never under our control. It is the wild word. It's what Annie Dillard says when she's saying, you know, if we had any idea of the power that we we're actually talking about in God's love in Christ, we would realize that, in fact, we should have crash helmets and seatbelts in our pews. <laughs> that's the kind of love that she would describe as God's love. And in the context of that, is it actually leading us into a new communion in the body of Christ? And then does that actually enable us to together and individually become a signpost for the, for the marginal, for the marginalized, for the excluded, for the staining, for the enemies? These are the, this is the work of the communion. And if the church in the 21st century is going to matter, it has to be all three of those things. It has to be about God's living word embodied in Jesus Christ. It has to be a different community than the church is, rotten or not rotten. It needs enormous change and renewal. And then a manifestation of it at, at all the edges of the culture and society. 
That's a church that would really matter in the world. And that's the church that Jesus himself was living. That's the church that he was trying to form. So the final word of hope is this, that at the end of Matthew 28, just before what we know is the Great Commission, the text simply makes the observation, and then the risen Christ, and then Jesus gathered with the 11. Now, it's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the Gospel that makes the most of the 12. So 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12 appears over and over again because of the whole sense that Jesus is establishing a new Israel. And suddenly, we come to this high point you know, that we call the Great Commission, and it says, and then Jesus gathered with the 11. It's always fewer than we thought. There's a whole story and narrative around that. And then the second thing is, gathered with the 11 who believed and doubted. And in Greek, it's even more um, intense than that. It's like, the ones who believed also doubted. They were 11 believer doubters. So the church that Jesus said was going to matter and that's changed the world is a church that began with 11 believer doubters. This is not, quote, we need a few good men. It's not the Marines. It's not the fit, the best. It's like, no, it's just 11 believer doubters and a lot of really faithful women who decided that what was actually going to change the world was the way that that unexpected communion of faith and doubt could happen in the world. And as I think about you all being on the front line, whether you think your church is too small, whether it's always the 11 and never the 12, whether you think that you see or don't see the women, whether you believe that you're caring about the communion, the hope is actually in the ordinary churches that you're actually in. This is why some people ask me periodically as a pastor, or as a person who's been a pastor, do I miss the high holy days? I said, I really do not miss the high holy days. What I miss is actually just ordinary time. That was always my ordinary time. Just give me ordinary time. In ordinary time, in an ordinary church, you can live as a transformational, world-changing, world-mattering community. It's not about size. It's not about uh, any fanciness. It's not about technology. It's not about the aura. It's about the living, authentic evidence of an unexpected gospel that's changing lives all the way to the core and reorders our sociology and demonstrates a reality that we are meant to be. Amen. Lord, thank you for your desire to help us be these kinds of people and to acknowledge, as we must, that we have all kinds of reasons at times for despair and frustration and pain over matters that we've touched on. But you understand all this and you are calling us to belong to you and to show that we do. I pray that every person here experiences in their own heart and mind a, a renewed vocation to be among those who are redeemed, who hear the good news for us as well as for others, and who together lead and serve and embody the evidence of a real and living and hopeful gospel. In Jesus' name.